Support for Think Humanities is brought to you by the Spalding University School of Creative and Professional Writing. Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 49 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. On the podcast today, Cynthia Williams Reeser, who is the foundation professor in the Department of Teaching, Learning, and Leadership in the College of Education at Eastern Kentucky University. And she is also a member of our Speakers Bureau of Kentucky Humanities, available to come to your speaking uh, event, your uh, class, your church, uh, your gathering of friends, to talk about two uh, subjects which I'm interested in hearing her speak on, cooking in Kentucky before the Civil War, and then later in the podcast today, we'll talk about funerals, mourning in Kentucky in the 1800s. Professor Reeser, thanks so much for being here. And thanks for having me. I always love talking about history. Well, I want you to sort of uh, jump right into cooking in Kentucky before the Civil War and set the stage for us on the the years that we're going to discuss, uh, the the time period. What are we uh, talking about when uh, we're talking about this uh, many, many decades, many years before the Civil War? Well, I use the Civil War as sort of endpoint because that's an event most people are familiar with. But what I'm really talking about is cooking in a pre-industrial era, because for thousands of years up until the Industrial Revolution, which started in England in the late 1700s and then came to America in the early 1800s, for thousands of years, people cooked with very simple tools. Most might have had a pot, one or two cooking pots. They had very simple utensils and they cooked over an open fire. So in Kentucky before the Civil War, the Industrial Revolution took a little longer to come uh, west towards Kentucky. And of course, roads weren't all that great. And so a lot of people were still cooking using hearth a hearth cooking as their main technology. They didn't have those cast iron stoves that we think of as old fashioned today, but are really a product of the Industrial Revolution. A lot of middle class homes didn't really have those until the 1840s, 50s, around the era that the Civil War begins. So imagine if you are uh, the woman of the household, and of course in Kentucky before the Civil War, it was women doing the cooking, women either the wife or women meaning a servant or possibly an enslaved person, They were doing the cooking over an open fire in a hearth. And so there are early cookbooks that have recipes, but as people read them, they may not recognize the references uh, to that kind of hearth cooking. So it's a completely different world. No thermometers. Uh, The instructions aren't as explicit because they assumed you knew a lot more. So that's really what I mean about Civil War. It's pre-industrial cooking over an open fire. Are we talking about um, uh, women primarily who were cooking in a home, um, a, a cabin, or are we talking about women and maybe both cooking on the, the frontier, uh, 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 moving from site to site in a, I'm, I'm envisioning a, a wagon, a covered wagon of some sort, horseback. Uh, We're talking about both of those? Really, it's the same technology. It's a fire. Uh, Of course, outdoors, as people were moving west, over an open fire, in the open, 
your problems are going to be compounded, compounded because in a cabin or in a home, a hearth, you're going to have hooks that could swing over the fire or back away from the fire to regulate your temperature of the pot that's going to be hanging over it. You're not going to have the wind to deal with, you know, the weather and that sort of thing. But the knowledge of how to regulate the temperature and how to cook things or I'll say bake, and I'm doing that with finger quotes, to bake mm-hmm. things is going to be very different from what we're familiar with today. Did they use, now I'm familiar with uh, the, a Dutch oven. Did they use, uten- uh, would that be a, a utensil or not really a utensil? Uh, that would be a, a cooking pot of some sort. Would they use a Dutch oven? Yes. Uh, cast iron cooking pots like a Dutch oven were what you baked in. So, for instance, uh, one of the earliest cookbooks uh, in America is The Kentucky Housewife by Latisse Bryan. And she uh, is a native Kentuckian. This book came out in uh, 1839. And she's describing a type of cooking that would have taken place over a hearth. And one of her recipes is a peach pot pie. And she says, put your paste into an oven. And she doesn't mean the kind we talk about. She's talking about put your pie crust in a Dutch oven, put the lid on, you know, and then put your peaches in it, put your lid on it. And then you would uh, put hot coals on the top of that Dutch oven. And a lot of them had lips that would hold those coals. And that's baking. Another way that they commonly baked, uh, because a bake oven is a totally different thing. Uh, They might have had a beehive oven. Uh, like, um, and I can describe that in a minute, but uh, they maybe would have baked in a cast iron pot like I just described, or they might have steamed breads or puddings, not that jello stuff that we mix with, uh, making a mix with milk. A pudding would have been steamed bread. So people are familiar with Boston brown bread. They may have made that and steamed it in a tin can in a uh, a pot of water. So that might also be baking where you'd put it in fabric like a bag and you would hang it Um, over your hearth, over a pot of boiling water, and steam bake. Uh, But a lot of people didn't bake in the sense that we think of today. But now, for instance, at Shaker Village, they have beehive ovens. And these are the equivalent of those outdoor pizza ovens, you know, that all the gourmet people want, uh, where you would heat that up in advance with hot wood and coals. You would scrape those to the side, and then you would put your things in there and bake. Uh, But that required a lot of fuel, a lot of time that a lot of homes would not have had. They would have baked in these Dutch ovens, like you mentioned, or steamed things. What was a, a beehive oven made of? Oh, gosh. Um, I think now I'm not as familiar with that, but it's a brick structure. And the ones at Pleasant Hill are actually built into the back of the house. So it's a part of that brick structure. And then they line that inside, I'm assuming, with something the equivalent of concrete. So it's a smooth surface, but some of them may be a rough brick surface. I love this old house. And I saw them uh, remodel one so that it could be used as a modern pizza oven the other day. Uh, but it's sort of like uh, like you'd build a hearth, only it's enclosed with a door. So you can maintain the heat and then put a door over it. My reference to, and the only reason that I think I would know about a Dutch oven came from uh, my very young years as a Boy Scout. Okay. And the and the oven that we made um, uh, as part of our uh, merit badge uh, process was made of mud, and uh, there was no concrete, or the the lining was was mud paste. Uh, built with a a wooden frame, and of course the mud acted as the insulator. It's just like I don't know if um, if in the cookbook or if you know of or if the Shakers 
cooked baked potatoes surrounded in mud into the fire. I've not seen them surrounded in mud in the cookbooks of the time, but, you know, it very well could have been possible. I have to say on my bucket list is to learn how to cook in a beehive oven and on a cast iron cook stove. I've located a cast iron cook stove, but I've got to get it moved somewhere where I will not burn anything down. And sadly, <laughs> at Shaker Village, uh, by the time I worked there, uh, when I was in graduate school, theirs had developed a flaw and they were afraid to use it. But I would love to get good at uh, pre-industrial baking. Well, obviously, there were challenges for a, a frontier cook, a pre-Civil War um, uh, person who was in charge of making the meals. Uh, what were some of those uh, challenges or did they at the time look at them as uh, challenges or was that just a way of life that they had to adapt to and and make work? I think it was it was just what you did. You know, they wouldn't. It's just what you had to do. Uh, now, of course, women were doing a lot of the cooking. Women wore long skirts and a fire was a very real danger. You had to be really careful not to get your skirt in, in a fire. And a lot of women were injured or even killed uh, by getting their skirts on fire. Children could fall in the fire. Uh, and so that was dangerous for children as well. So those were very real challenges. Um, also, in a pre-industrial era, transportation was a lot more limited today. So you were often limited by the ingredients you had on hand that you could trade for, that you could trade locally, or that you could grow yourself. So almost all the recipes from uh, the Kentucky Housewife uh, a lot of them begin with, uh, you know, take the peaches from your garden or milk the cow uh, or, or the implication that you have those things on hand or you must obtain them locally. Also, um, you know, a lot of um, things that we buy very cheaply at the grocery store would have been luxury ingredients that were imported from long distances. Now, in the new world, uh, in colonial America and early America, we had access to sugar and a lot of things that in the thousands of years before were very expensive. For instance, in the Middle Age, uh, Middle Ages, sugar uh, from the uh, sugar cane uh, was very expensive and actually was medicine. Only kings could afford to put sugar in things. So their diets would have been much more seasonal, uh, much more limited and very, very boring compared to mm. today's standards where we have so many choices and what we can eat and drink. Uh, but you kind of ate the same things day in, day out with only seasonal changes. Although the peach bake sounded pretty good to me just a few minutes ago. Yeah, uh, it, would have you, been, it would have been good. It's just you wouldn't have had that variety that we had. Of. What do you know um, or have you learned about Latisse Bryan? I've learned some about her. I want to do a lot more research. Uh, she was actually born in central Kentucky and uh, she married a man. Uh, let's see. She was born 1823. No, sorry. That's her um, uh, wedding date. <laughs> Uh, she was born in, in around the Danville area, and she married a man who was born in Virginia in 1823, which isn't that unusual, like a lot of people were still moving into Kentucky at that time. And they were married in Adair County. He was from Washington County. Uh, some of the sources I've found said he had uh, three brothers, and they were physicians as well. Now, he later became a physician. They moved to Wayne County, and as far as I can tell, he was practicing as a physician. But at that time, uh, let's just say the bar was pretty low to practice as a physician. You could just really call yourself one. 
Uh, but he actually did attend the Ohio Medical College for a, a short amount of time, not the long period of graduate education we have today. And they were living in Wayne County in 1839 when her cookbook was published. And there's um, around 1,500 recipes. I mean, it's a thick book. And you can buy a reprint today uh, very inexpensively. And while she was putting this together and printing, she was having children. She had a total of 14 children. Oh, goodness. Uh, By the so, same husband? Uh, yes. And so what I would like to learn a lot more about, and I'm not even sure if I'd be able to, is I'm guessing she had to have help. Uh, and a lot of women uh, of a middle class that she would have been in would have had help either, uh, like I said, an, uh, enslaved people or hired people that would have helped them manage because the workload was just huge. And 14 children would be a workload for anybody, even in today's world. So I want to learn a lot more about her. But they ended up moving. They moved later to Washington County, to Grayson County. Uh, and she actually died in Illinois at the home of a daughter and son-in-law. So there's a lot more I want to learn about her. But I think the recipes got me interested. And in the fact that she actually lived where I'm from uh, got me more interested. Yeah, you're a native of Wayne County. Is there any reference to her in uh, anywhere that you know of in the county in Monticello or anywhere? Uh, do you see a, a, a plaque up or anything like that? Well, no. In fact, she wasn't on Wikipedia till I got her added, and that was a fight. <laughs> but, really? Uh, no, but I think there should be. And uh, I don't. Uh, live, I do too. Yeah, I don't live in Wayne County now, but again, I've got a long list of things I'm going to do in the near future, uh, and so I want to do a lot more research and help people realize that. Gosh, you know, we've got a famous author uh, right here that was born right here in my home county. Um, in fact, I did find a reference. This was uh, uh, 1885, and it was a reference from the Henry County, Illinois, uh, a biographical album they did. And it said, Mrs. Latisse Bryan was a woman of unusually fine presence and well-educated for a day in a land when a schoolmaster was not abroad to teach. She was the writer of two works on religious subjects and the writer and publisher of the Kentucky House book, a Housewife, a book in great request 50 years ago, but now out of print. Uh, and that was in 1885. So, you know, people knew about her, uh, but she was lost. But now uh, you can get her book. Well, tell me a little bit about the, the foods that she uh, might have uh, cooked uh, for her family or uh, any other woman of that era that uh, was uh, also cooking. Uh, you describe in your talk um, as a member of the Kentucky Humanities Speakers Bureau that there were plain foods, uh, the boring foods you were talking about, but uh, occasionally on special occasions, they would do something more. So describe some of those foods for us. Well, one way is to just look at the chapters. And a lot of the chapters in her book uh, are about different ways to cook meat. Uh, so beef, uh, veal, which of course is a young calf, uh, mutton, and a lot about pork uh, and, and chicken or poultry and game as well. So it reflects the, you know, the, the meat that people had on hand. Some of my favorite recipes uh, for meat are for, for shoat, S-H-O-A-T. And a lot of people today don't know what a shoat is. I grew up on a farm and we actually used to uh, kill hogs. And they also raised hogs. So uh, my father every day listened to the uh, Louisville Farm Report where they price barrels and shoats. And it's a young pig. 
Uh, so she has lots of recipes for that as well. But it shows how our language even changes when our technology changes. Words go out of usage. Then she has um, recipes for lots of recipes for pickling, for vegetables, because those are the kind of things, again, you would have had on hand. But the fancy recipes tend to be in the pudding section, which again, not the stuff we think of. These are different types of cakes in most cases. She has pastries, which of course can be a savory pie or a sweet pie, like the peach pot pie. And there's a cake section as well. So of course, a cake is going to be something that's going to require extra effort and fancier ingredients in many cases. So cakes, now you don't see cookies per se, but you see a whole section on sweetmeats. And again, that's a recipe, uh, excuse me, that's a word nobody uses anymore. And a lot of people will guess a sweet breads, which are organs, uh, but a sweetmeat is a candy or a sweet treat. And uh, so you'll see a lot of sort of the special things there, uh, different kind of candies and also uh, jellies, marmalade, sweet things like that. Um, Remember, too, that in this pre-industrial era, we don't have refrigerators, we don't have freezers, and the canning methods that we think of old-fashioned, you know, with ball canning jars and flats and those round twisty lids, that is a product of the Industrial Revolution. Those were invented in the late 1800s. So in Latisse Bryan's day, um, you preserve things with lots of sugar, lots of salt or alcohol or a combination of those. So you could preserve fruits with sugar and make a jam or jelly and it would last because instead of those sealable lids and pressure canners, often you would wax paper or fabric and create a wax seal uh, on your canned goods. So it's even, even what we think of as old fashioned canning was new technology to people like Latisse Bryan. And of course, uh, Everyone, I would imagine, had a, a cellar and uh, a lot of storage of, of foods uh, down in the cellar. Uh, there are, I would, I would love to know uh, how many people can today, how many people use a cellar to store. Um, I, I think, um, it, would, I, would I be wrong in uh, imagining that uh, Canning is a, is a lost art, or is that still being done uh, on a regular seasonal basis uh, in the rural parts of Kentucky? Well, I think it's always been done by some people, right, in Kentucky and other places. But I think in recent, really in the last 10, 20 years, there's this huge renewed interest in food. And, you know, the slow cooking movement and knowing where your food comes from. So I think that uh, there's... Be been a resurgence in preserving food and growing your own food or getting locally sourced food. And I think the pandemic really gave canning a real boost uh, in this last year is because I've seen a lot more things on social media about canning. And, you know, if you do go uh, to the local store this past year, canning flats and canning rings are really hard to find. Uh, so I think it's something that it, it maybe is one of the good things that came out of the pandemic, that people have become a, more aware of that process and are more engaged in that. Is there still a, um, and I imagine there is, a, a huge area of the Kentucky State Fair where products are put up uh, as the best of uh, canned goods and all of that? Have you been to the State Fair and? Recently? I have not been in several years. Um, 
I don't know. Uh, I do know that interest, I think, has decreased in local fairs because I don't think you see as many preserved products at the local fairs. And honestly, I'm not sure about the state fair. I remember seeing foods, but what I think I remember the most is the cakes and pies uh, because they have those beautiful decorated cakes. So I'm not real sure about the canned goods. We'll have to check in, uh, check on that. Maybe somebody listening to our conversation on the podcast will will let us know about the uh, Kentucky State Fair. We're talking to Cynthia Williams-Reeser, a, a professor in the department, in the College of Education at Eastern Kentucky University. But uh, for this purpose, she is a member of our Kentucky Humanities Speakers Bureau. We've been talking about cooking in Kentucky before the Civil War. And we're going to uh, pause here and hear from our underwriter. And then we're going to come back and talk about the dead, funerals, mourning, and how important part of uh, they were of life in the 19th century. Right after this word from Spalding University. At Spalding University's School of Creative and Professional Writing, students develop mastery of the writing skills, highly prized in today's workplace, including arts and humanities organizations, government agencies, corporations, and small businesses. A professional writing student will explore opportunities writing for trade and consumer media, including reviews, profiles, interviews, and articles for sports, food, travel, health and science, and other publications. Learn more at spalding.edu slash school of writing or email school of writing at spalding.edu. Professor Reeser, the, the second talk that you're prepared to uh, entertain and educate people with all across uh, the state of Kentucky and nearby states, if they uh, so uh, want you to, uh, is about mourning the dead, about funerals, about the place uh, that they took in uh, early uh, 19th century uh, living in, uh, I'm sure, Kentucky, as well as all, all over uh, the United States, all over the, the southern part of the United States. What what can you tell us uh, your research and, and uh, study of that has, has uh, shown you? I think a lot of people assume that funeral customs are something that don't change because usually within our lifetime, they don't so much. But like any um, social history or history of daily life, if you take a long view, there has been a lot of things that have evolved. And Kentucky is a great place to look at the customs of uh, mourning and the customs around cemeteries and burial because we have all the eras right here in Kentucky. Uh, We have the earliest era of cemeteries in the new world now. And again, I'm speaking of the European immigrants. Uh, Native Americans have totally different traditions that I just am not equipped to address. But of the um, European immigrants, the first kind of cemetery that they had to establish was just, well, you die, let's bury you. Because there were no established, you know, cemeteries uh, to put you in. But very soon they started uh, creating family burial grounds. Uh, and as well as church burial grounds. And, you know, back in the old world in Europe, you had to be buried in the church ground, in the consecrated church. Family burial grounds weren't a thing there. It really wasn't allowed. But in the new world, because some families were so distant from a church, there was no way you could transport a body uh, from a house out on 
the frontier to the local church or cemetery. And so they start to develop these family burial grounds. And we see lots of those all over Kentucky, uh, some in better shape than others. But then as the frontier becomes more developed in Kentucky, of course, we start getting different kinds of church burial grounds. So people who were a member of a local congregation would be buried at their local church. And most of those were restricted to members, you know, so Baptists were buried at the Baptist church uh, and so on. Uh, so, but then the next phase um, is town burial, town cemeteries, or corporate cemeteries, and they reflect an entirely new tradition in customs in Kentucky. And we're sort of in that phase now. In, in what way, I was going to ask? Um, in the early part of the late 1700s in England, and again, in the early 1800s in the United States, we get a shift in how people view the dead. So uh, in the European Christian tradition, uh, death was something that you, were, you dreaded because you were afraid you were going to go to hell. So there was symbols called memento mori, and often there were skeletons, you know, scary things, skeletons, skull and crossbones to remind you, you're going to die. You better be worried about your salvation. So death was uh, grim. Uh, the symbols and cemeteries were grim reminders of this. But once you were dead, they didn't have this sort of concern about your body itself. They put it in the ground and they buried it at the church cemetery. But cemeteries were all purpose places. They could have been where uh, someone raised their cows. They could have had a fair on the cemetery grounds. They weren't this special hallowed ground. But with the Enlightenment, where people start changing their views of the afterlife, the afterlife gets viewed as a more positive place. Uh, and also, this is shifts away from a very grim Presbyterian view of predestination to this idea that, you know, lots more people can get to heaven. And so this changes the symbols, this changes the words, and this changes how cemeteries look. So, for example, um, instead of skull and crossbones on graves that you will see in a few very early uh, tombstones in Kentucky, but you'll see a lot in New England, uh, away from these scary symbols to these more positive symbols like angels, right? Because death is viewed as a sleep. Uh, in fact, the word cemetery comes from an ancient Greek word that means sleeping place. So we don't call it a burial ground anymore. You know, that's a place you put the dead people. Now it's a sleeping place. Uh, the symbols are changing because people's views of religion and the afterlife are changing. And so Kentucky, you can see that shift to these new kinds of uh, symbols in our cemeteries, but they also invent a new kind of cemetery. It's a corporate cemetery. Uh, and a lot of your town cemeteries or uh, big cemeteries are these corporate cemeteries where anyone of any religion could be uh, buried as long as they pay for their plot. And uh, they were again following, the very first one was in Paris uh, in the early 1800s and uh, England, they start building them around London, the Highgate. The first one in uh, America was Mount Auburn in Boston in the 1830s. And so you see them and they're like a garden. They have beautiful winding roads. They have pretty monuments. They have family plots. Uh, they were gardened a lot more than they are today. The advent of the lawnmower did a lot of damage the power of lawnmower to rural cemeteries. Uh, Cave Hill in Louisville is uh, probably the biggest example, the well-known, best well-known example, but almost every major town in Kentucky has one. Richmond, 
uh, cemetery is a beautiful example, the old part of winding roads and these uh, really impressive monuments. Even Lancaster, where I live now, has a very impressive part that's sort of landscaped with winding roads and these impressive monuments that show this shift. Why would Cave Hill in Louisville be a symbol of, is it because of the immenseness of its territory or of its acreage or... Uh, well, everybody wanted, every town wanted to get on sort of this bandwagon. Everybody needed this new style of cemetery because it showed you were a real town, right? I mean, if Paris and London has them, if uh, New York and Philadelphia, uh, all the big cities on the East Coast have a real cemetery. And there were also tourist destinations. You know, people went, walked around, admired the pretty scenery and the symbols on the graves. So every town wanted one. Lexington Cemetery has an area that's landscaped like this. And when we go to Cave Hill today, to the old part, you think, uh, or uh, you think, oh, wow, this was just a plot of land. But often they did huge things to move land to make hills and ponds and uh, picturesque scenes uh, and that sort of thing. So it was a part of a bigger movement of gardening and to make things beautiful. But then it's a garden to sleep. And then it blends in with these cemetery changes as well. So uh, approximately as far as the, the maybe the decade or the the year, if you could get kind of close to that, when that when it changed, when that that new image of the the cemetery as a garden, as a memorial rather than a place uh, just to to put the dead. Well, what again? I'm just trying to to get in my mind when that was that the the middle eight. 1800s or so? Um, 1830s is when yeah. a lot of those were established. Okay. Um, and so uh, Mount Auburn was the 1830s. Most of the ones on the East Coast, uh, Laurel Hill in Philadelphia, um, the one in New York, and I can't think of the name right off, Hollywood Cemetery. Hmm. Um in Richmond, Virginia. Now that one's a little unique because it got wrapped up in the Confederate Memorial movements. Uh, Cave mm. Hill was chartered in 1848, mm. so not so long after the East Coast one. So you know, you think about a lot of these sort of move west. Mm -hmm. Well, that's interesting, and and um, I don't know if I've ever. Uh, you could probably direct us to maybe something in Kentucky if it's still available, where a skull and crossbones or a um, a symbol, uh, a spooky symbol um, I have, uh, might, might be available. I can't name one right off uh, hmm. because I'll, I'll be honest, they're hard to find. In some no. of the very oldest cemeteries, you will see those very thin, flat monuments. Uh, there's a few in the Richmond Cemetery that were actually moved from an old burial ground. The problem with a lot of those are so... Um, uh, the weathered, so weathered that it's hard to even read the names on them. So I'm going to be really honest. I haven't identified specific ones in Kentucky that I can think of right off. Um, but certainly, for instance, any of them in the, you know, the historical part of Boston, there's all kinds of them there. Any of those East Coast, very early cemeteries, you'll see a lot. But they're, they're hard to find. Also realize, too, that in that earliest era in the late 1700s, uh, Kentucky was still not as settled as the East Coast. So you may have uh, a family cemetery, but you're relying on, you know, local resources. So you may not have had an accomplished stone carver that could do that. Uh, so that may be part of the problem, too, because a lot of people were being put in family cemeteries where it's a, a rather basic monument there. Um, 
you can find me on the EKU website. I love going to cemeteries. So if somebody knows one, email me. <laughs> yeah, I was just getting ready to say uh, or ask you as a final question, how did you become interested in in this sort of thing? And by the way, it's Cynthia.Reeser, R-E-S-O-R, Cynthia.Reeser at EKU.edu. Um, and, um, you know, she might uh, might take you with her and um, <laughs> and 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 troll through a uh, somebody. How'd you how'd you get interested in uh, in this part of your research and well, your uh, interest? Let me think. I love cemeteries because they're beautiful places to walk and there's interesting things to look at. Uh, I lived in Nicholasville for a while and I used to walk in their cemetery and I got interested by the different stones. But then also I'm interested in sort of that long haul history, how symbols that were around in the ancient world. We still use them today. We just often attribute different meanings. I do a scavenger hunt with some of my students in the Richmond Cemetery, and I say, find an Egyptian symbol. And I'm going to tell you, Richmond Cemetery is full of them, but it's the hardest question. And it's an obelisk. Those tall, skinny ones, those were really popular in the 1800s, but you just don't think of it. But we're still using obelisks that the ancient Egyptians used. Mm -hmm. uh, the meanings changed somewhat, but, you know, they were all into the cemeteries and death uh, in ancient Egypt with their famous uh, burial monuments. So that got me interested and I started reading more. And then I learned about the rural cemetery movement. And, you know, it's sort of and, and so they're the most dramatic. And then there's so many things that are associated with um, a process of mourning, you know, wearing black and all those social history customs. And, and a lot of those customs were maintained and practiced by women, again, who often get left out of the story. So um, everywhere I went, I would look up the cemetery and uh, the rural cemeteries are just they're just so dramatic in these big cities. I have to say, if you're traveling on the East Coast, the one in Troy, New York, is probably mm. got some of the most dramatic mausoleums from the mid uh, 1800s that you will see anyway. And I got I thought, now, why? Because Troy, New York, during the Civil War era, was like the Silicon Valley of today. It was a huge center of industry because it was at the end of the Erie Canal. It was close to the Atlantic and it just boomed with industry uh, before, during and after the Civil War. And so you had these families with a huge amount of money that wanted this giant mausoleum or memorial uh, to, to, you know, show wh where they'd been. Uh, Chicago's Graceland, not the one Elvis lived in. It's <laughs> impressive. Every big city uh, has one on the east side, but the styles chart start changing a little bit as you get uh, farther west. The times change, and then the styles start changing a little. Cynthia Williams-Reeser, uh, again, is the foundation professor in the Department of Teaching, Learning, and Leadership in the College of Education at Eastern Kentucky University and a member of our Speakers Bureau. She's available to come to your your school, your church, uh, your uh, family gathering, uh, wherever uh, a few gather to hear someone interesting and someone who can impart uh, a great deal of, um, of history uh, from Kentucky and beyond. So, uh, Professor Reeser, we thank you so much for spending uh, some time with us. Well, thanks so much for having me. And I want to add that if I do come and speak, I have lots and lots of pictures to share uh, because everything I've talked about means 10 times more with pictures. So I'm glad I'm not on the camera, but I wish we could put all the pictures on the radio. Well, we'll figure out how to do that sometime. <laughs> and uh, again, thanks and uh, good luck to you. Thank you. 
Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 49 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.